0: Everybody. and welcome Whoa. to the next show the future is unpredictable this has always been the case however during the past months this has become even more tangible and yet we try to grasp the future rely on expert predictions cling to models that help us structure the unknown with our next activities we have been trying to look ahead from the start to understand what will become relevant for innovators and business leaders in the years to come and to think about more desirable futures. To do so, we read the signals in order to predict shifting behaviors and meta trends. Sometimes we see things coming, sometimes we don't. This week saw developments in the US that I wouldn't have predicted even my wildest dreams. Three things struck me in this context, especially. Racism is very deeply woven into our societies, not only in the US, so becoming aware of unconscious biases and one's own misconceptions is a bigger obligation than ever. Staying silent on these matters is no longer an option. This is also true for brands and digital platforms. While we see a polarization of parts of our society, we also see a growing part of our society that aims for a future that is more just and is willing to fight for it. So we all have to think about our own role in this and how to make a difference. Thank you for joining us today for our new episode of What's Next. My name is Ina Feiseltzer. I'm responsible for the next conference in our further activities. I'm here on our digital stage with our curator, Monique van Dusseldorp from Amsterdam and our keynote in residency, David Matten from London. Joining us from Australia today is the political scientist and futurist Professor Sohail Inayatola. He is the UNESCO Chair in Future Studies and is consulting governments, companies and NGOs and also kids and students. Thank you for joining the show today to discuss Preferables' futures. But before we start with his perspectives,
1: let me hand over to
0: Monique and David for our picks of the week.
1: Oh, thanks, Ina. Um, Words of wisdom there. Now, what does this week bring us? Here in Amsterdam, it's a strange week. I mean, the lockdown rules have been changed again. Restaurants and outside terraces are open. It was a very sunny day as well. So suddenly we are confronted with, okay, we go outside and we need to keep our distance. And the first example I've brought is a project by two artists uh, called SDS, Smart Distancing. And in this case, what they project is computer-guided laser beams, sort of playful guidance on how to move to public space. Uh, They're called Jolan van der Wiel and Nix Verstand, and they're actually building this into a real product. I mean, this is an early example of it probably good for for really big spaces. And what I mean, it's such a strange time. I mean, imagine if you've had COVID-19, there's a good chance you've lost your smell and taste and now we're losing touch. I mean, lose touch, no handshakes, no pat on the back, no hugs. Anyway, also big companies are looking at how can we do this? And the next example is from Google. It's Google Sodar. This is something you can use yourself, you know, it, it works on your phone, on an Android device, and you just go to um, Google Sodar, and then you see this, you know, it just maps the space around you, superimposing the two meter radius circle, so even more than we in Amsterdam do. And, well, it works, but is it useful? My experience, the people that want to keep distance will do. It's more the people that don't want to. So it's a really complicated thing how are we going to keep our distance? We have parks in Amsterdam now where they put circles in the grass. So you know if you sit down in the grass, which you, you know, are welcome to do, at least you keep your distance from other people. And we had big public demonstration protests uh, against the, you know, about the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, what happened there was in, in one case, people were standing really too close together. But in other cases, in The Hague and Rotterdam, they really kept their distance. And that was impressive. Because it meant that thousands of people filled a whole big square, you know, lots of space in the city. So for protests, actually, it's impressive. Anyway, um, it's very hard to keep your distance. Looking at tech and helping us getting out of this health crisis, um, governments, authorities all over the world are working on tracing and tracking apps. You know, who got infected, how can we keep them isolated from other people, can we make sure that people they have contacted are warned about this and go into content? Very hard to make that work. But um, tech is going to play a huge role in this. In, in the Netherlands, um, it, it just it's interesting that uh, the guy who is uh, helping the Dutch government develop a tracing and tracking app like this is actually the same person, Jelle Prince, who did the Uber app, you know, the Uber app was designed by him, so he has a good um, interaction design background. We'll see what happens there. Um, other, com- other countries are uh, already launching their apps. Uh, Austria has one. Uh, Switzerland is working hard. But the one I want to uh, show, and maybe we can see the video now. I'm talking about the tracking app. Yes, please. Great. Thank you. Um, the tracking app is the one from Latvia. And this is Latvia's president, Igles Levits showing the up to uh, tracking apps. And it's now available for 2 million Latvians. Latvia has been very good in, in keeping the virus down. And what they do, they actually use Apple and Google information as it's been made available. And um, the app exchanges signals or digital handshakes via Bluetooth, which will then be encrypted on users phone. And if one phone user becomes ill and gets tested, the other will be warned that he or she has been in contact with an infected person. And everything will be anonymous so you don't know who and you don't know where you got infected or were in contact with an infected person but at least you will be warned now will that help david what do you think
2: Thanks, Monique. (laughs) Absolutely fascinating examples. Anyone who's watched previous episodes knows I'm pretty obsessed um, with surveillance and tracking the virus and what it all means. Um, If you are interested in those issues, as I am, you definitely should check out what's happening in China right now, where they've built just an incredible tech-fueled infrastructure, sort of literally in months, to help track... And contain the virus obviously helped by the fact that they can essentially enforce cooperation from their tech giants you know tencent alibaba they can enforce cooperation from their citizens um there's an app in china right now called the close detector app the close contact detector app basically rules daily life in china right now so this is an app just as you were saying monique that tells you you know have you been in close contact with anyone who's known to have the virus um if it shows you a green screen you're all good you're allowed to go out to leave your house if your screen turns red you have to stay at home and you have to scan a qr code you have to scan this app basically to get on a lot of public transport or to get uh, to shop, so it's just a fascinating insight into how this kind of tech-fueled authoritarianism can really help kind of squeeze the virus, clamp down on the virus, and that's gonna raise some serious questions for different kinds of political systems. You know, To what extent are we in Europe, are we in the West going to want to trade our data, um, our private information, our freedom to a certain extent in order to control this virus? I mean, there are huge questions around that. excuse me, and huge questions about how it plays out in China with the social credit rating system. Is this system ever going to be dismantled um, and to what extent? Now, look, we're not going to see that kind of stuff or that intensity of it in Europe, clearly. But check out how these kinds of technologies are going to change our daily life in Europe. This example I want to show you is Scandit. This is a Swiss... Um, software startup essentially and it makes software that essentially turns any smartphone, any phone into just a barcode scanner and an object identifier uh, scandit's just raised more money because uh, it wants to see a huge surge in growth because it wants essentially to be the platform that allows people to just go into shops pick up objects off the shelf and just scan the barcode themselves, you know, pay through the app and leave the shop. Uh, so instead of standing at a till, instead of all that queuing, all that stuff, just scan your stuff and go and scan it. Say, you know, we're about to enter a new normal when it comes to retail. It's going to be endless queuing, it's going to be, you know, endless social distancing. All of that will be much improved if you can just use our platform to identify the products on the shelves scan them and pay for them the only place i've ever done that myself is in the apple store and it does feel kind of magic it is kind of amazing uh, it's crazy yeah now you're finally seeing right now how they want it to work in shops so before you were seeing a kind of full business example this is how they want it to work in shops the only place i've ever done it is in the apple store and it does feel pretty magical it's like you almost feel like you're stealing the stuff it's like am i really allowed to do this is this going to be the normal for us um when it comes to the way we shop um we're going to see these kinds of innovations i think everywhere Um uh, one other i really wanted to show you monique this should be close to your heart this is adyen um this is a payments a fintech startup um partnering with the famous and rightly famous reichs museum to just launch digital payments all the way through the reichs reichs museum so you can buy your tickets you can buy tickets for the for the exhibitions, you can pay at the cafe um, just with your phone. Now, look, this is a story really that I think we're gonna see time and time again with the crisis and the lockdown. It's accelerating a trend that we knew was happening anyway. I mean, digital payments were happening anyway. When I go out for coffee, you know, a lot of my friends are already paying for their coffee with the phone, you know, that's no big deal. That trend was, was well underway. But this crisis, this moment is going to deeply accelerate that trend and bring it to places that maybe would have been a bit slower on the uptake. It's going to be a much more rapid Um, uptake of this trend of totally cashless totally digital payments and there's all kinds of other crazy questions to answer okay if you don't want to touch anything when you pay at the till what about all these touch screens what about all these touch screens mcdonald's installed so that now that you go to a mcdonald's you don't talk to the person you know they thought they were being super clever you go to this huge screen and you touch i want my coke and all this stuff That's pretty new, they've only really just put that in. No one's gonna wanna do that now. No one's gonna wanna touch a big sheet of glass that millions of other people have touched right before they eat. So what are McDonald's gonna do? Spare a thought for McDonald's, that is my message. Now look, Also, when it comes to the way this crisis is changing daily life, there are a couple of examples I had to show you, not so much about people being out there and payments and so on, more about entertainment, okay? Interesting new behaviours when it comes to people seeking out entertainment during the lockdown. The lockdown has obviously meant no sport, no competitive sport, no live sport being broadcast. This is a huge deal for hundreds of millions of people. Live sports, obviously a massive, massive deal in broadcasting. And what that's done is pushed people in some really interesting directions. The channel you're seeing right now, the video you're seeing right now um, is from a Dutch YouTube channel called Jellers, Jellers, I hope I'm saying that right. Monique can correct me yeller's marble runs um this is the world ladies and gentlemen of competitive marble racing and these guys stage highly elaborate incredibly technical um marble races and they've seen their channel go through the roof in the lockdown so they have over a million subscribers now they 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 reenact famous sporting events they call this one the marbula e it's supposed to repl- replicate the formula e like race car drive that we've seen like in recent years. And they have a ton of other like amazing videos and people are addicted to these videos in the lockdown. There's no competitive sport. So they're interested in competitive marble racing. One other example along these lines, check this out. This is two uh, Englishmen in their lofts solving Sudoku puzzles. And again, their channel on YouTube has gone through the roof. They have like over 250,000 subscribers. Edging a million people have watched their most popular video, which you're seeing right now called The Miracle Sudoku. And it it doesn't, there's nothing about it that's different from this. It's half an hour of this, of what you're seeing now, which is this former investment banker, this very, very smart, but very quiet, shy and retiring English guy solving a Sudoku. Um, And I just think this is such a powerful signal again, of an underlying trend we knew that was happening anyway that's being accelerated. Like lockdown has vaporized a ton of jobs. This guy left his job as an investment banker to start this channel. And that was a couple of years ago. Nothing to do with lockdown. But lockdown has vaporized a ton of jobs, they're not coming back, many of them. There's a long run trend, vaporizing jobs, that's automation decade on decade. And I think we're gonna see more and more work shift in the direction of just true human connection, doing things that machines that automation cannot do, which is just human connection. And you can think of that as care and also crucially entertainment. You're gonna see millions and millions of people making their living just from entertaining others and i'm not saying everyone's going to be pewdiepie with 10 million followers and 100 million dollars in the bank you're going to see millions of people like this making a decent living serving a relatively small audience and however niche your content there is an audience out there for you. This isn't even that niche. These guys have a million people watching them. However niche you go, there's going to be a small audience for you and you can make a living out of that. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. And that will be accelerated by this moment because a ton of traditional jobs are going to be, have been, unfortunately, sadly, wiped out. So Monique, what do you think of that? Which do you prefer, Marble Run or Sudoku? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just, you know, I, it's super interesting. It, it also brings back a, a quote from a long time ago, which is, uh, the, the, some of the brightest minds of our generation are based on the fringes of the entertainment industry. I mean, oh, really smart people. But I guess it's more important to connect. I mean, connection is more important. Ah, anyway, um, I like the marbles. You know, I like the marbles, but that's because they're Dutch. Yes. Yeah, Dutch marbles. Wow. Anyway, I wanted to close this uh, weekly review with an example that comes. Not from digital, not from the screens, but from cities, you know, just something lovely and physical. And I think the lockdown has brought all of us a new appreciation of our own neighbourhoods. You know taking a walk let's you know see the city as a place to live in and not as a tourist destination so the lockdown has brought us closer to our to our own neighbors and cycling and maybe not driving the car so much now this what I show here is a wonderful initiative from rotterdam and a lot of people will not travel abroad this summer and in Rotterdam they now working on holiday streets so the locals get the tool to make their own street into a holiday destination like traffic is rerouted, pools and games for the kids, they put green grass on, you know, on the asphalt, on the tarmac. And um, this is done by Drift, the Research Institute for Transitions, and they help the inhabitants also to find out what works. And uh, and already 15 streets have signed up, you know, everybody in the street has to say, okay, let's do this, you know, let's change our street. And previously, they did happy streets and dream streets. And, you know, this summer, it's going to be holiday streets. So. If you look at the world and all things look so miserable as they do right now, and then you look around you and there's treasure everywhere in the words of Calvin. Okay, that's it for now.
2: Very heartwarming, very heartwarming.
1: Anyway, it's time for the next part of the show. And as we promised, our star guest this week is the brilliant futurist Sohail Inayatullah. Professor Inayatullah is the UNESCO Chair in Future Studies and one of the world's leading futurists. He works with CEOs, NGOs, businesses, countries to help them see and shape the future. He is here to talk to us about what he sees coming next and how you can plan for what lies ahead. Roll the credits.
2: Thanks, Monique. Okay, let's do this. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Um, there's so much to talk about, but I want to get the one of the big questions that I know will be on everyone's mind out of the way first. You are one of the world's most eminent futurists, and I know that the big question everyone wants to ask you when they meet you is, what's the future? What's going to happen next? So I would love to settle that question first. I know you recently talked about four big scenarios for a post-pandemic, a post-virus world Um, and I think we can see those flashing on the screen at some point Um, but yeah I wondered if you just want to talk about those four scenarios a little bit and most important which of them you think is most likely what do you think is going to happen next?
3: Uh, In our work in futures we tend to shy away a bit from prediction because the world is rapidly changing and we want people to think of alternatives So a month ago, we started to look at what are all the text, the data, what are people saying? Scenario one was very much in the CDC in the U.S., zombie apocalypse. That this will create cycles and cycles and ripples of fear. In a zombie world, you don't trust anyone. So you're always wondering who is the evil one, who is the zombie out there. So that clearly creates a society where trust is lost. What does that mean for business, your organization, your country? That's scenario one. Scenario two was the great pause and then back to business as usual, which is this is our year of rest. No flights, no endless workshops all over the world. People slow down, reconnect with self, connect with family, connect with nature when they can leave the lockdown. So this was the slowdown, and then next year we go back to what we used to do. And there was a whole range of new literature called The Great Awakening, we slow down, not to go back, we slow down to transform. So if you go back to Alibaba in 2003 during SARS, that challenged their entire business model and they went online. So this is forcing everyone to do things differently. And people are saying, well, I don't want to go back to the way things were before. This one school I'm working with, in January, we ran 170 teachers through a futures process. They said, we want flexibility. We want more connectivity. We don't want to do school the way we've been doing for the last few hundred years. I met with them again a week ago and they said, "Okay, our core story with let's be flexible, learn anywhere on time. And then now as the lockdown ends, we'll keep the virtual and do some face to face. So this is scenario three where this leads to a reawakening and awakening in perspective and technology and purpose. Scenario four is the tough one, the great despair. The contradictions between, you might say, ethnicities, between countries, the contradictions, lead to a seven-year recession depression. The virus mutates, and this is just the beginning of the pandemics. I mean, with my colleagues in the health fields, we've been talking about this for 15 years. Everyone kept on saying the next pandemic, the next pandemic, and now we're in this horrible sci-fi movie. So in this one, the horrible sci-fi movie continues. So here are four futures. In the zombie one, nations start to fracture. They can't, if there's no trust, what keeps you from doing anything you're doing? In the deep pause, here's the chance for rest. In the transformation, we're always looking for, as we leave this, what do we need to keep from this? And the fourth one is be ready for seven years of depression.
2: Yeah, and so we're all hoping we avoid the great despair, but I'm fascinated by this idea that exactly as you say, you know, futures work and foresight work, contrary to what most people think is not really so much about predicting the future or trying to know the future. uh, I, I've read some fascinating stuff you've written about how it's actually more about the present and trying to reframe your vision of the, of now, right?
3: Yeah, you, w- you want to use the future to change today. When you talk about today, the politics is so entangled, no one can take a step forward. Unless you have a leader or a group of leaders or citizens say, here's where we want to be in 2030. So when I work with young kids, when I work with ministers, organizations, There's a battle about today. We said, we get that battle. Tell us the world in 2030. If that's your world, what are you doing today to start to create that? So then your actions about your vision inform what you do every morning when you wake up, who you connect with, who you talk with. So then you look around the world, which prime ministers, which CEOs are actually living that future vision and which are ensuring today gets worse. That becomes a criteria
2: yeah so the best foresight work i guess is really about empowering you to take action now to change your present and move towards the future you want
3: it's agency there's so many blocks we see in the world i've been working with various mental health groups and we said we can tell there'll be more youth suicide suicide in the next five six seven years how do we make sure that doesn't happen and this goes to narrative they said, our narrative is a world full of roadblocks. I said, what does that mean systemically or structurally? They said, well, that means health officers don't talk to law enforcement, don't talk to ministers, don't talk to city designers. So we have a system where it's roadblocks. So I said, okay, what do you want? Well, so we want a connected system with real-time information for people with lived experience or mental illness to help them and assist. So then we said, well, the narrative helps create the new future. So we said, what's the better narrative? The data tree real-time data sharing so you can start to figure out here's a more likely person might commit suicide and we have uh, Japanese cities are trying to get those early warning indicators. So foresight set is where do you wish to be, what are the scenarios, and what are these early warning indicators we can see Uh aha problem (coughs) coming or opportunity coming. Let's jump on the
2: wave and ride it. So let's zero in on something I really want to ask you about um, that I hope will be super useful for our audience too. We know we're in a very chaotic moment or it feels very chaotic right now. It feels very uncertain. Um, Everyone is asking what is coming next um, and how do I plan for the future? How do I make sense of this? We've talked about how futures work and foresight work is not about knowing the future. But I would love it if you can give a a framework or a a mental model that can help people watching this. You know, the business people, the founders, the CEOs, the marketers can help those people think in a structured, constructive way about the future and what is coming next for them individually and also as businesses, as organisations. Like a framework or a model. And it has to be super simple so that people, the people watching this can remember it and go out and use it. Like, what is that framework or mental model for you?
3: So I call it the what works perspective. So the first thing is go from prediction to futures and asset, something you can use. The second thing is we ask, what's the use future? What's one thing I'm doing that doesn't work, but I keep on doing it? Is it endless hours in a car? Is it work nine to five, five days a week? So that's the use future. Get rid of it. The third is what's coming down the road, weak signals. Is it technology? Is it demographic shift? Is it changes in what we eat, end of meat? Is it new food sources? So what's coming down the road? The fourth is scenarios. Not one future, but many futures as we did with COVID-19. Always think of alternatives. There's alternatives. There's less conflict, less violence, more opportunities, more new ideas, more products, more services. Then where do you wish to be? Not just alternatives. Get very clear in your mind, in your personal life, 2030, where are you? What are you doing? And what does it feel like? Then the next part of it, what's the supportive narrative? The old narrative we were looking at cities designed, cities is that the old narrative was, I love my car. That leads to congestion, pollution. We're seeing with COVID-19, pollution levels drop everywhere. So the new metaphor could be, I love my city. I love nature or everything within reach. Then you design the future based on the narrative. If you go through this process, an asset, get rid of the used future, what's coming down the road, scenarios, what's your vision, and what's the new story, that will pretty much help. I've done this at every level, the prime minister level, with eight-year-olds. We had some parents start to cry and say, oh, my God, I thought my kid for sure was going to be a drug addict. He now has, she now has a vision of the future and a way to get there.
2: Yeah, I love this idea of of thinking, uh, f- first of all, almost about the used future, about things, um, things in your present, trends you are riding or habits you are in that just no longer work. And the pandemic has been incredible for exposing those to us, like on a collective level, it, you know, we kind of knew it didn't make sense anymore that we're trekking to the office five days a week in this morning commute with millions of other people trekking back home in the evening to do this knowledge work sat at a computer that we could have done at home. We kind of knew that it didn't make sense anymore, that we were flying all around the world constantly, constantly, and that's not sustainable. Um, And it would be so powerful, wouldn't it, for people to think in their their own lives, to think individually about what the crisis has shown them in their own lives is just not working anymore that they can dispense with. I guess that's one power- we can see people. Yeah, we
3: can see that in the US, right? In the US is very clear. The deep divide is not working. You can't have a great nation if there's a deep divide, whether it's between rich and poor ethnicity. So the contradictions, COVID-19 is bringing out these contradictions. They're saying, hey, look at this. So in this sense, the metaphor around the crisis is important. Is it just the disease? You find a scientific medical cure. But what if it's more than that? What if it's more early identification? This is pandemic one, what about climate change? This is our chance to make a huge shift in the world. And further, there's the writer Roy says, see it as a portal. So you see the crisis as a pandemic, as a portal to create this alternative future you wish to see. So if it's a portable, we're in a transition somewhere. In that transition, there's contradictions we're facing now between us and nature, between ethnicities, between basically uh, economies just on growth versus economies that are balanced. So this is kind of an opportunity to try to look at those and transform them. So this becomes the positive one. So scenario three, in terms of your early question, the great reawakening or the awakening, it's a renaissance, here's things that don't work, here's things that work, how do we actually go on that pathway? Yeah. There's an inner dimension too, the mindful part. Like when we do foresight work, it has to be a quietness. It's hard to receive new ideas if my mind is moving like this. It's when I'm a quiet space, meditative space, then I'm able to actually reflect on where I wish to go and basically what the alternatives are and what's wrong right now. So this is an open mind, and then you create a desired vision.
2: Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. That's so useful. And, and I mean, you can think of that as you did on huge systemic and, and national, international levels. I mean, I've even tried to uh, use the, the lockdown and this moment of pause as a chance to think just on a very micro scale individually about um, what is my used future? What am I hanging on to that no longer makes sense? Or what, what, where am I in contradiction between what I say I want, what I want and what I'm doing day in, day out? Um, like this moment can be a powerful moment for that kind of individual reflection too, right?
3: Yeah, the factory model of education, the factory model of farming. They were great in the 18th century. In 2020, not so great. So those structures got us here. They can't get us through the portal. We have to let them go.
2: Yeah, okay. Now, before we head to the audience for some questions, if we have any, um, I'd love to just ask you quickly about, you mentioned this a few times, I know narrative is central to your foresight work. You know, you talk about a lot of your work as narrative foresight. Um, tell us a bit about that and why narrative and storytelling is such a powerful tool when it comes to foresight, and again, how the audience out there can use that.
3: Well, in my world, I find with, org- with organizations at every level, international to, again, young kids, it's data plus story. If you live in a data world, you have information, but you're unable to communicate or influence. If you live in a story world, you have wonderful visions and ideas, but you don't connect to the real world. So we're always trying to connect data with story. So we say, okay, if there's a problem in your life, what's the unconscious story? So I was with someone the other day and she was saying, well, I don't have enough time. So the normal response is read a book on time management, right? And she learned, well, how do I create time? What are the conflicts around time? What do I need to get rid of? And then it became very clear. The inner story was time was like an enemy. And then she changed the narrative to time is a friend. Time creates purpose. So you switch from this whole battle around time to now time being an asset, a friend. And then actually then basically time is purposeful. So every morning you decide what should I do today? What gives purpose? What gives joy? What gives, which, What gives direction? What gives service? So once you shift the story, you act differently. And of course, we know the world looks different you see the world different and then you behave differently and people see you differently so it creates a cycle of alternative futures and the empirical <clears> research <throat> shows that's the case you change a story the world actually looks different and people respond in st- from story
2: right it just it just feels to me that we're, we're such storytelling animals and whether you like it or not you're walking around with this story in your head um and that might not be serving you and it can be so powerful to in the ways you've said to, you know, you've given some, some powerful tools there to think about the story you're carrying around and, and, and try to change it in a productive way. Um, I think... Okay, you know, let's at the go, point, go ahead. Sorry, go on, go on. Well,
3: you're at the point, people say, well, it's not a true story. And I said, well, no, it's your point. Does it serve you in the future you want? Now, you can have a debate then about politicians. They use story for short-term exclusive politics. And we're suggesting here, this is a portal to a Gaian polity. We use story as an inclusive vehicle to bring more people in. So this is moving from just GDP to people, planet, prosperity, purpose. So the story can be used in inappropriate ways or it can be used, let's, is it serving us creating a better world?
2: Okay, let's head to the audience and see if they have any questions for you. Inna, do we have any audience questions?
0: Before I hand over to the audience, so to speak, I would um, like to ask if you could uh, give some insights. I know you're working with uh, younger kids and students. How do they imagine the future? What is their picture they're sharing?
3: Well, I mean, I can't say right now because, you know, right now there could be some anxiety, right? I know I I was talking to my daughter and I said to her, you know, you're living through unprecedented times, dramatic times. And she said, I'm sick of these unprecedented times. Can we have something normal? So there's a sense that it's too much going on. We need to slow it down, perhaps. So that's one thing. When we do inner work, my favorite example is, uh, I think she was 14. And I said, what's your vision of the future when you're 25? And she said, I'll be a CEO, I'll run a a, a, um, a tea shop, a, a small tea shop, we'll see of that. I said, fantastic, that's your vision. Then I said, what strategies are you engaged to do that? She goes, I'm studying math, I'm studying science. Great. And then I said, tell me your actual metaphor. And she said, oh, the metaphor is the blinds are down. Then her colleagues, her friends were there and they started to cry. And then I watched it and I said, why are you crying? They said, well, she won't let us in. And then it hit her. If she wants to be a CEO by 25, she thinks it's math and science, but actually it's communicative intelligence. It's connectivity with friends. The community makes the business. And then I said, so what's the better metaphor? She said, let the sunshine in and they all hugged it out. Now I said, okay, if this is the case, what does that mean in terms of your next seven year strategy? Let the sun shine in. What does it really mean? It means, she said, I'll need to do spiritual intelligence, technological intelligence, emotional intelligence. So I need to make sure the skill sets I now will work on match my new metaphor taking me to my vision. So this was kind of a proud, you know, for me, profound, but watching everyone cry and hug it out, that was great. So that's kind of futures in action, creating futures, enhancing the capacity. to It's futures literacy. Thank
0: you for saying that. It's a bit of a hard cut to uh, come to the audience questions there. Uh, there. There's one question about the markets and where China and the U.S. are heading. Do you have...
3: Well, this is questions? again scenarios, right? I mean, we have a book out on the next 500 years called Macro History, Macro Historians. And we try to look at the long waves. Those of you who read Hegel, you know about the Geist, the Hegelian spirit. And it said it went to the US and of course it's going to leave. We're in a hegemonic transfer. That transfer is almost inevitable. Can we make it peaceful? So that's part one, it's a natural transfer of power. It is going to Asia for all the reasons we know. The more important question, can we make this hegemonic transfer peaceful for all to benefit? Now further then is, well actually is it just to China or do we create a real global governance system a real world economy where everyone gains? So then you start to think of what EU has done, many amazing things, some not so good things, but you start to think of Asia Confederation an African Confederation. So you start to reimagine the world less about bipolarity, but about a world of multiple regions creating some type of governance system. That becomes a more idealistic scenario, especially with AI, virtual technology. So new technologies create new governance systems, create new economies of scale. So scenario one is U.S. hangs in forever, uses violence against self and others to maintain power, right? And we know which way that will end. Scenario two is is a nonviolent transition to China as kind of a center. Three is this is really about a whole range of confederations on a global governance system. And scenario four is it won't matter because we have a global peer-to-peer economy where everyone's connected to everyone. So those are four choices. Let's see how we act to play those out the next 30 years.
0: Last week, we had Harper who suggested to have some companies to gain state status um, like Google or whatever, Amazon.
3: I mean, my old professor Galtrong suggested that. He said if you have a world governance system, then you really need to, can't be just nation states. You need citizens, companies, NGO communities, and states. So this is, I like what you're saying. It's rethinking Who's eligible for governance participation? And COVID-19 again is saying the old models of geopolitics, meaning the war against, doesn't work. Because this is the politics of vulnerability. Vulnerability creates public health and greater global health. War against gets us in the same mess we've been in for the last 500 years. So that's the narrative shift I'm hoping for and trying to think, what would that look like? We move away from that old
2: model to an alternative one.
0: Thank you. that was the audience part. My hand back to you, David.
2: Well, Professor, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for joining us and I hope that the people out there watching can take some of those tools you talked about, the used future, think about what's not working in your in your your own present, in your life, in your organization, think in terms of scenarios, think in terms of narrative and the preferred future. And, and, and build future scenarios for all of us that, that work and are preferred and, and avoid the dark, the dark scenarios that you talked about earlier.
3: It's brilliant, I hope the same thing.
2: Before we let you go, I'm going to hand back over to Inna because there is one more urgent mission for you to undertake. Um, so yeah, Inna, over to you.
0: Imagine this, it is the near future. Amid increasing acute crisis on planet Earth, not so hard to imagine right now, a crack team of technologists finalizes a daring plan to start a new chapter for humanity. They will travel along with 1,000 specialist selected people far beyond the solar system to the planet next one. There, they will establish a permanent base a new society, a new home for human beings. Sohar and Ayatollah, thanks to your outstanding achievements in the field of future studies, you have been chosen to be among the first 1,000 pioneers to travel to next one. But before you undertake your journey, you must answer five questions. Let's see question one. Name one luxury physical object you want to take to your new home.
3: I would take a basketball with a basketball court.
0: That is amazing. That's the only game I can play, so we can play together. I love it. That sounds great. Question number two. Name one exceptional person who should qualify to be among the first 1,000 pioneers.
3: I would like some type of enlightened being type. Meditative wise can really go into an altered state. So that person can keep us, you know, centered and in bliss. Help us in that journey because there'll be risk and dangers and anxiety, all the normal stuff.
0: I love that idea. Create one law that bans something from next one forever.
3: This will have people angry at me, but I would prefer a no-meat society. So no killing of animals.
0: I'll be in, even if it's hard for me. Explain one truth about human nature or one ethical principle to live by that you have learned from experience.
3: I remember before my father passed away, he had a two-year disease. And the last time I saw him, he came to me and we hugged and kissed and he said, Thank you for being kind to me. And it was very touching. You know, it was like I felt I had been a good son. So I think it's being kind to all.
0: Yeah, being kind seems to be the new rule for the next planet. Last week's pioneer was the technologist Pamela Pavlicek. She asked you, when you travel to Planet Next one what about earth will you be nostalgic about
3: i think if i look at this COVID face i would miss i mean what i like is just slow time being with family sleeping in the afternoon when i want not having to get up in the morning for meetings i really like that so if suddenly it was a more regimented time zone i would really miss that so that's definitely would be nostalgic this kind of
0: And our last question, could you please identify a question to ask our next week's pioneer, who will be the American media theorist, Douglas Rushkoff?
3: Well, you know, on his, it says his first book was rejected. It was on the internet. The publisher said, we don't think the internet will be around for another year. So it was rejected. So I would ask him, what does he think is the next big forecasting error?
0: Thank you so much for joining. I think you will be fit to board our little mission and come with us to next one. Thank you Sounds so great. much for joining the show today. Um, and I think, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today.
3: Brilliant. Thanks so, so much. I enjoyed it.
0: So thanks, everyone, for watching the show today. Next week, we will be back on our usual afternoon slot on Thursday. Joining us then will be author Douglas Rushkoff. Um, and I hope you'll be in there as well. And this show is made possible by our hosting partners, Accenture Interactive and Factor 3, and with the support of the video platform provider 23. So thanks to everyone involved in planning, organizing, and producing the show, especially to the next team and our guests. I hope to see you next week. Thank you.